This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Stuart McNish, coming to you from the studios at Old Boy Productions, specialists in the development of shows just like this one. This week, we take a look at alternatives to securing affordable housing. The range is greater than you may think. It includes options like lifetime rentals, co-ops and co-living, tiny homes, floating homes, and more. Joining me this week are guests Michael Geller, an expert on virtually everything and every aspect of housing, Barb Nelson, who just staged the first ever Tiny Home Expo, and Sandy McKellar, along with Kelly McCloskey of the Floating Home Association. Joining me now is Michael Geller. Michael, welcome. It's nice to be back. Today we're going to look at a wide variety of different ways in which you can actually get into the housing market. It's a pretty interesting uh, series of things that are developing. Um, From your perspective, is this something that we should be looking at because we need to move beyond what we we saw as uh, being sort of the, the traditional model of housing, which is I save up, I buy for myself? Absolutely. In fact, in a way, there's an analogy with cars. It used to be that the only car was a gas car. Right. Then we have hybrid cars today. We have electric cars. We have plug-in hybrid cars. We have a whole variety of hydrogen cars. There's a similar comparison to be made with how people own or rent housing, and yet we don't often have that discussion, so I'm glad to chat with you about it So it's a variation on a theme. Exactly. So, you know... The traditional Canadian model or dream was I buy my own house, and usually just a single resident home uh, was was what we thought of. But that's not practical for a lot of people. Even buying a condo isn't practical for a lot of people. What are some of the options that are now coming available that really are worth exploring? Well, certainly one option that we hear a lot about is co-op housing. And again, co-op housing means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. You know, when I say co-op housing to people in Canada, they generally think of either those older little buildings in Carisdale or they think of government-subsidized housing because so many of the co-ops in Canada were subsidized by the government. And there, people don't actually own their own unit, but they own a share in the total development. Mm-hmm. But in the case of the government-subsidized ones, you don't have any appreciation. But you may remember when John Lennon was killed, he was living in a co-op in New York, the Dakota. Indeed, in New York, co-op housing is, in fact, one of the most exclusive forms of housing because an advantage of a co-op over a condominium, at least in the eyes of some, is you can decide who gets to live in the building. Oh, Okay, but are you restricted in the fact that you will not see an appreciation in the value, or is that outdated thinking? That's outdated thinking, and indeed, there are co-ops in Vancouver that were built many years ago, which which appreciate over time, just Mm -hmm. as they do in New York. And I expect that in the future, we may well see people like me, older guys and women who want to perhaps live together with a group of their friends. Perhaps we all play tennis, or we all play bridge and we could create a co-op but we would own a share in the overall building now the banks often don't like financing co-ops but for many older people they've already built up equity so they don't need financing 
Hmm. It's an interesting idea because then as one person either passes on or decides to move on, they can sell their share, but they can't just sell it to anybody. That person then has to be vetted and accepted by the rest of the group. That's right. But now, now there are people who are going to say that's exclusionary. It absolutely is exclusionary. And when one of my friends moved to Vancouver recently from London, I had to write a letter on his behalf to the co-op to testify that I thought he would be a, a responsible neighbor. But hmm. when you think about it, it certainly does begin to address some of the problems that people think of when they think of conventional condominium living, where in condominium you own your own unit, you share the ownership of the common area, but you pretty much cannot determine or exclude people from moving in just because they don't play bridge. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the benefits besides that that make co-op housing attractive and is it a little bit more affordable as a result? It's more affordable when you've got the governments willing to subsidize as they did in the past. So when I worked for CMHC, for instance, we would actually lend 100% of the cost of building the co-op to a group of people who got together. The government would often provide the land to that group. And so that is a model that is still applicable today. But it's not by any means the only model. Another one, which sounds like co-op, but isn't, is co-housing. Yeah. <laughs> so what is co-housing? Because you're right, it does sound like co-op. So co-housing is a hybrid, if I can use that car term, yes. a hybrid form between a co-op where people get together, live together, share certain responsibilities, and a condominium where they still own their individual home. And the main difference between co-housing and condominiums is that often the group will get together at the beginning, form a small nucleus, they may even hire the architect, find the site, develop the project, and oftentimes we'll have a smaller home, a smaller unit, in return for having more communal space. So there may be a communal dining room and kitchen area, or there may be uh, far more interior places for children to play. And co-housing is becoming, I think, a very attractive model in Canada. It comes to us from Denmark and Europe, mm -hmm. and it's not just for young people. There's a wonderful co-housing development for seniors in Souk, British Columbia, which uh, is well worth visiting if anyone's in uh, in Souk. Okay, so who who pulls this group together? Is it a group of people of like-minded people who say we want to live together? These are the things that we want to do, and they, in essence, become the developer. Or is this something where a developer would say we're putting this together? You can now apply to be a part of this group. Generally, it's the group that starts off the project, but oftentimes now they're starting to work with developers. So, for example, I've been consulted by a group that's looking at buying two floors in a high-rise building and converting those two floors into a little co-housing development, if you like, a community within a strata community. And again, it's, there's pros and cons to this, like everything else. But the why I'm so pleased to chat to you about this is because I think we should have more conversations about these housing options. So with co-housing, what is the benefit as far as price is concerned? Because this is an overarching concern, especially in this marketplace. Well, is it gonna save me money and still give me ownership? Where there can be a benefit is when the group actually does become a bit the developer themselves. They hire a professional to manage the project, but there's the potential to eliminate some of that developer's profit. The other thing is oftentimes uh, an, an, a church or the, a government may be willing to make a site available at below market cost because they like the idea of a co-housing development taking place. Well, I guess the next uh, level down on that is shared equity in like a single property. Are we seeing more and more of that? We're not seeing as much as I thought we would see, considering that this is a very interesting model. But the federal government recently announced a new mortgage program, which most people don't understand. <laughs> yeah. but, but effectively, what they're saying is there's a lot of people out there who could afford the monthly payments, but they don't have the required down payment. Mm -hmm. And so the government is saying, we're willing to look at an arrangement whereby we'll put up some of that equity for your down payment and in return, we will share in the anticipated appreciation that will occur 
over time. And they will share in the losses in the event that there are losses over time. So does that work then if, let's say, you have two families or two groups that say, well, we want to buy that duplex, uh, be joint owners on it, but neither of us can afford the down payment, but we can afford a portion of it, and so they can both apply to the federal government and get that additional like bump up that then makes allows them to qualify, and then they both get to live there and be joint owners. Right, right. Whether it's a duplex or whether it's a condominium or indeed indeed a house. Now, there's a major variation on that, and that's when we're not going to have the government involved. It's just that you have this technician working here today who wants to buy a home. He's got a lovely job. He works regularly with you, but he doesn't have the down payment. Mm -hmm. One of the models that's out there is called a shared appreciation mortgage. I think that person is a good investment. I will lend him $200,000 for the half of the down payment that he requires, and in return, he doesn't have to make any mortgage payments to me, but in return, when that home is sold, we will share together the appreciation. And that is essentially what shared equity is all about. So that, very popular in Europe. So that, in essence, is going after private financing or for the down payment. The rest, you go out to the bank and, and secure the, the remainder of the mortgage. That's right. But there's variations on this because oftentimes, again, if we look at England, there might be something called a housing society, a benevolent developer or a benevolent organization organization or a church organization that gets involved in creating a project and they take that role and so what you're beginning to do is you're not actually purchasing a hundred percent of the home up front you may be purchasing 50 percent of the house or putting down payment for 50 percent and the other organization puts the other or in some situations you purchase half the home and you make rental payments on half the home and as your income increases, you, it's the term we often use is staircasing. You slowly climb the stair so that in 10 years, you own 100% of the home. Now, people are confused with this, but what I want the point I want to make is there are these variations out there that can help people get into housing who, as in an ownership way who might not otherwise have the required down payment. So how are they going to go find those sources of income uh, or or, uh, I mean investment. Well, in some instances, organizations set themselves up. We've heard a little bit in Vancouver about community land trusts. That's an example of an organization that gets involved in the development of housing, shares in the ownership uh, arrangements. So it's a model that, that is out there. And we're starting to talk about it here but like a couple of other options that I'd like to chat about, we haven't advanced very far. Okay, well, I just want to just continue on on that because as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, would this be something that mortgage brokers are starting now to add into their portfolio, saying, well, I've got other options for you that you might want to explore in ways that can help you uh, get into the housing market? Well, it's a good question because last night I was chatting to a mortgage broker about the fact that I was coming to talk to you about this today. She said, will financial institutions recognize this? I said, well, yes, they will. Well, she said, my bank doesn't. But uh -huh. the point is, if you have to make monthly payments on that, let's call it a second mortgage or on that equity payment, then the banks have a problem. But very often there are arrangements where somebody simply puts that, they invest that uh, down payment or a portion of the down payment. They don't expect any monthly payments. They're not getting any annual interest payments, but they're going to get a nice cut of the appreciation when the home is sold five years from now. Hmm. Okay, so that's all on the on the purchasing side of putting down a down payment. What about the option of rent to own? Okay, so this is a concept that most of us don't understand, and there's so many different variations. There is a project right now in Metro Vancouver in Port Moody, which is being advertised as rent to own. Many people immediately think of televisions when you think, or washing machines, because in the old days, oftentimes people uh, bought appliances with they making certain payments, they were leasing them, and then at a certain point, mm -hmm. once they made enough of a payment. It's again, a variation 
information. Um, for everybody who thinks it's a good idea, there's someone who, who wants to caution you about it. But the idea in principle, I think, is a good one, whereby you're making payments. You don't necessarily have all of that down payment you require, but you're making payments, and at a certain point, you can transfer the rent payments or a portion of the rent payments into the down payment to, to own the unit. Well, a lot of businesses do that when it comes to purchasing equipment. They go, well, I'm going to go to that leasing company. You're going to ask me for a minimum down payment. I'm going to pay over a certain number of months. And at the end of that, I own the equipment. You've made money. You've lowered my operating costs. And I now have access to something that I wouldn't have had otherwise. In fact, we started off talking about cars. Yeah. We forget about the fact that I think the majority of the cars that I see on the road today, especially those more expensive cars, they're not actually owned by anybody. They're generally being leased. Right. So somebody has put down not the 45000 They may have put down $5,000. They're making the monthly payments. And after three years, they have the option. Yeah. They can either let go and get a new car and pass it, or they have the option to buy out that car at a reduced price. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, there's a comparable situation with housing as well. So in the rental market, there's also the opportunity for lifelong leases. Why would somebody consider that? What are the benefits? Okay, so life leases is a very interesting model, which is difficult to understand. But basically what it is saying is you have the right to lease a particular apartment or townhouse for life. And in the old days, these were often priced based on annuity tables. They were often used for seniors. If you were 95 years old, you didn't pay very much because on death, the home reverted to, to the society that built it. We're generally not doing that today, but what we are doing, uh, a wonderful example is the Performing Arts Lodge at Bayshore, built for people like you, performers, media personalities, who over the years have uh, contributed a great deal, but, but didn't, didn't manage, make money. <laughs> didn't make a lot of money, yeah. Stu, unlike you. <laughs> but the point is, the point is, there's an interesting model. The Performing Arts Lodge at Bayshore, in one of the most beautiful developments in Canada, because I was the project manager for 10 years. Well, it was right down there in Coal Harbor. Right here in Coal Harbor, <laughs> next to the Weston Hotel. There's about 113 homes, and I think 14 people paid up front around 200, 250,000 for the right to occupy one of those apartments. On the understanding that when they either leave or they die, they get that money back, but no appreciation. But that money was then used by a nonprofit society to build the project the rest of the units are effectively subsidized rental. It's a wonderful arrangement, and it troubles me that it hasn't been duplicated. Now, mm -hmm. the, it needs to be developed by an organization in which somebody has a lot of trust, but there are a lot of, again, benevolent groups, church groups, charitable organizations that could be copying this model. The risk, of course, is that when I put up that $250,000, it's not going into trust account like it does when you're buying a condo, the society is actually going to use that to build the project. But in return, you're getting a wonderful home, oftentimes in a great community, at significantly less than what the market value of a condo would be. And CMHC, the National Housing Agency, is promoting this concept. They have it material available on it if anyone wants to look up life lease housing. But it's particularly attractive for seniors who oftentimes have a bit of equity and would be pleased to live in that kind of communal arrangement. The most important point here is unshackle your thinking about what is available and the idea that you have been shut out of the housing market. That's right. I mean, many years ago, I worked for a private development company, and we were building condos in Fairview Slopes. And my boss got the idea, why don't we design apartments for two people to buy together? Mm -hmm. A 
co and it was a form of cohabitation. So we basically designed the apartment with a living dining kitchen and on one side was one master bedroom and the other side was another master bedroom. And it was designed specifically for two unrelated people to buy and live together. But to have a shared living space and an independent living That's space. That's right. And again, it's a model, it's a variation. There's no reason for not doing more things like that. So cast your mind a wide and far and come up with solutions that may work for you and a few other like-minded people. I mean, right now, so many people are resigning themselves that they may never own anything, that they will be renters for the rest of their life. I mean, and I, I will confess, when I moved to Vancouver in 1981, I was like that too. Mm -hmm. I looked at the price of housing, and my wife and I said, we're, we're out by a zero. <laughs> um, we bought two cars, and we rented. Eventually, we managed to borrow some money. My boss lent me some money. I bought a small house and slowly got onto the property ladder. Mm -hmm. But I do encourage people, uh, if you can, don't be afraid of exploring some of these more innovative uh, arrangements. And I also encourage people who've got money. If you've got a nephew or someone uh, or a friend, don't be afraid to perhaps help them get into housing and take advantage of these shared appreciation mortgages. Because oftentimes, well, I don't think we're going to see the huge appreciation over the next 10 years we saw over the last 10 years over the long term housing always goes up always goes up because people still want to keep moving to vancouver thanks for coming in and sharing these ideas my pleasure thank you michael now just before we go on to our next guest i want to give a shout out to our sponsor realco they're the company that has built Scott and Nicholson, which is a collection of contemporary one and two bedroom plus den homes at the heart and soul of North Delta. It merges the convenience of bike and walkability to shops, schools, and amenities with spectacular parks, trails, and golf courses nearby. A modern space and your welcoming nest. To learn more about Scott and Nicholson, please visit realcoproperties.com slash Scott and Nicholson. Now to our guests, Sandy and Kelly of the Floating Home Association with the inside scoop on what you need to know if you think living on the water in a floating home is for you. Sandy and Kelly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We live in a place that costs a lot of money and a lot of people are looking for housing alternatives. And you are representing one of those alternatives. And once you start to dig into it, it becomes a fairly attractive you know, way to think about a living space in an urban environment floating homes what's the attraction to floating homes and then let's talk about you know a wide variety of things that we need to take into consideration if we decide to explore that well the floating home community has been around for 100 150 years in mm -hmm. bc and it's evolved tremendously so the history is one of of going from logging camps and fishing camps and then gradually regulation coming around that and being brought into the city and so the the there's a stigma around this nature where it came from that somehow it wasn't regulated or it's not paying taxes but all of that has changed and so there's a huge opportunity right now to grow this as a viable component of the housing opportunities in a place like vancouver or all over bc how many people make floating homes their residents in the southwestern part of British Columbia. There's about a thousand floating homes uh, in BC in about 25 to 30 different communities. We live in a marina that's got 29. There's some that are five. The biggest ones are 50 or 60. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of people who just own the foreshore, foreshore and put a couple floating homes in the water. So they're very diverse and the kinds of ownerships change quite significantly as well. Some like us rent, we pay mortgage. Mm -hmm. We own our floating home, but we pay somebody else for everything. Some oh, okay, so you own the home, but you pay for the area. Like, Just it's like, a, like, a, like we, a pad yeah. or, a, or a, yeah, a boat at a marina. Yeah. So okay. we pay, we pay mortgage. And that is a fairly standard cost throughout BC. It certainly goes up and down a little depending okay, on your marina. Okay, how much is it? So where we are with all of the costs in, it's about 1,200 a month. All your costs. So that's like your water, your sewage, your yeah. electricity, everything. Yeah. Well, that's not bad. No, it's actually quite good. Uh, but but the, one of the challenges that people have is they don't realize that you continue to pay at least that 
to have that lifestyle. So you, the cost of a home might be 400, 600, 700,000, but then you're still paying rent on top of that. So we like to describe it, it is quite affordable. Mm -hmm. but it isn't necessarily entry level. And a lot of people maybe have that perception, uh, perception because they'll look on, on, online and see houses selling for 300, 400, 500,000. Wow, with housing in Vancouver, that's great. To get waterfront for 300,000, where else can you get that? But people right. don't realize, you know, they get all excited and they buy into it and then they realize, oh wow, there's like this constant morga mortgage payment in a sense, right, this mortgage. Uh -huh. And so some people get themselves into a bit of a pickle. Okay, but let's say I'm buying a home for 400000 mm -hmm. One of the questions right now, do I have to qualify for a mortgage the way that I would for a mortgage for a home, or do you only get this through a loan? Well, the interesting question. Uh, we are viewed somewhat differently by the financial institutions. They tend to look at us a little bit like, well, they don't understand it. And they assume that you could maybe disappear in the middle of the night. And so they're very uh, reluctant to get too involved in in offering mortgages. Very, there are a few that do, but they're always very nervous. And so that's one of the challenges we've had is to try to make the, encourage the financial community to be comfortable because we don't we don't have power. We can't. Like a, we're not like a, a, a boat, motorboat. a motorboat, yeah. or a, or a, or what's it called? The uh, homes that have well, we have houseboats. Houseboats. Yeah. They can actually power on their own, and then yeah. you have floating homes, which require a tug or some other form of transportation to move around. Yeah. And floating homes are pretty connected to their dock. We've got our sewage. We've got our electricity, we've got our cable and phone and everything else, we're not going to disappear overnight. Too hard to do. It's too yeah. hard to do. Well, it is too hard to do. So that that's one of the challenges. But we, and I think most of the people that do go into the lifestyle, tend to be coming from a land home. And if you're coming from a land home in Vancouver, you've probably got some equity. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say probably more don't need uh, financing or a mortgage to get in, but obviously maybe But, but if you some did, do. you'd have to have some sort of fixed asset that you could borrow against. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I mean, as the association that represents the floating home lifestyle in British Columbia, it's one of the challenges that we are working to try to find a fix for, and that means not just working with local banks and, and mortgage brokers, but even working with the federal government, Ministry of Finance and CMHC, to help them understand floating homes and our and our permanency. Mm -hmm. CMAC is a challenge. They, again, don't understand it. They think it's a little bit like a mobile home park, and, and so they try to regulate it that way, and so they just don't give the the community the freedom to function like you would with a normal asset like that. So would the stress test apply if you were trying to borrow money to buy a floating home, or is it really so far removed from the normal way of borrowing money that that's not a non-issue. It'll really vary by the type of ownership situation you have. Like, like in our case, we're just paying mortgage, and so that'll make them a little nervous because there's no land attached. Downriver from us, the homes and, and some of the communities down there own their own water lots. They own that oh, okay. moving water. And that does appreciate, and it doesn't move, obviously. And so, again, that is much more receptive to a, a bank, et cetera. So, so what we found is that it's very individualistic, that uh, if, you, if you've got a good relationship with your, your bank and you've got a history with your bank and you're coming off of uh, mm -hmm. a land-based situation, you're probably fine. Or uh, you could be creative and go back to the current owner and say, you're going to have to finance me, which may or may not work depending on what the circumstances of that owner That are. may or may not work. We haven't heard of many of those uh, in people our People are creative community. and we live in times where yep. we need to be creative yep. and thus that's why I think more people are starting to look yep. at floating homes. Are you noticing an increase in the number of people who are now starting to ask those questions that could lead to floating home ownership? So what we saw was a few years ago there was a TV show on HGTV called My Home Floats and it was about floating homes, and it got into everybody's living room, and suddenly there was this keen interest in the world of floating homes. Realtors who specialize in the business suddenly had their phones ringing more frequently. The challenge for us is that um, this is a uh, fixed um, sort of uh, number of homes that are available. Mortgage opportunities are limited, and so what it did was it drove the price of selling homes up as opposed to opening up more of an opportunity for what we call more floaties. Mm, because okay. of provincial regulations and in many cases municipal or civic policies, 
um, the opportunity to build a new floating home community is fairly limited in British Columbia. The provincial policy actually is no more floating homes. That's official. It's written down. Like, no more. Uh, no more. Lands Department uh, of the Ministry of A big part of that was driven by the fact that there were parts of the province still where you had a lot of squatters, and they were sitting out there in lakes around B.C., not necessarily uh, dealing with their environmental their issues, anything. anything properly. And so they were trying to, uh, and they still are, trying to crawl that uh, in some particular areas. And they are making progress, but but that was certainly part of the, the challenge that, 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 that was being faced. Hmm. So if you want to get into the into floating home living, uh, you're going to have to buy an already existing home. Yes and no. I mean, one of the things that the province has told us, and they've been quite good, and we've really worked on that relationship, is that they have the ability to make uh, an, uh, a variance. variance, thank you, to the policy. Uh, and so the regional manager can do that. So if the city's on side, there's a developer, and, and, and the, the province will let the regional manager uh, deal with that. There's a a fairly recent, in fact, it's still being developed right now, development going in Squamish. Mm -hmm. And that's a good example of it can still work, but it's, an, it's a big disincentive right now. It's not really being encouraged, mm -hmm. and there's so much opportunity. When you think about Vancouver and the pressure to you know, grow in and up rather than out, mm -hmm. there's so much water opportunity there, and it's, it's, and it's such a fabulous lifestyle. And I'll give you the example of Delta. Delta, when they first got going, and Delta is one of the biggest floating home communities in the province, the city was very reluctant to get to go down this route. And there was, Why? well, because there was still this kind of image of, you know, are they really paying taxes? Are and they squatting? And there were shanty towns and on the river way back Hippies when. on the river, okay, Absolutely, yeah. right. that was it. But now if you look at a brochure from Delta, a tourism brochure, what do you see? Us. Mm. Not us. <laughs> but, okay, let's talk about this. <laughs> Is this a lifestyle choice? Like when you decide to, you want to go to a floating home, because there are some things that you know you park over there, you got to walk down a dock, you know, you got to carry your groceries and your garbage and all that kind of stuff back and forth. Does this become a lifestyle? Is that what makes it so attractive, or is it a, an affordability thing? Uh, you know, I think for the most part, it's a lifestyle choice. Yeah. There are people who may go this route, I think, in a misguided sense that it's going to be um, a financial savings. But as we've already said, you know, that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. um, many years ago, we took a river tour down the Fraser River hosted by the Ladner Historical Society. And that was the first opportunity we had to see the floating homes from the other side, because the dike basically protects them from view from the road. Mm -hmm. And Kelly essentially fell in love. <laughs> and 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 became romanced by this idea of living on the water. And I was unsure about that. And as you said, you know, you park way up here, you got to walk down a ramp, which, you know, we move 14 or so feet every day with the tides in yes. Ladner on the river. So some days our ramp is a pretty steep hike. And in the winter, if it's a little icy. And in the winter, mm, when it's snowy and icy, it can yeah. be certainly challenging. I mean, our marina is fantastic about keeping things as safe and clear as possible. But, and we looked, we looked for almost four years before we found the perfect home in the perfect situation for us. But it was definitely a lifestyle choice. And now that we do it, I want to say it was my idea because <laughs> it's an awesome idea. And we love it. Okay, so let's say I'm considering uh, this as a lifestyle. What are some of the questions that I have to ask myself to determine whether or not it's the right lifestyle? So how are your knees? <laughs> uh, yeah. And any other joints? Yeah. Any other yeah. joints? Do you, okay. get, do you get seasick? Uh, yeah. There's, do you have there's, a, sickness? there's a couple times in the year. The big storm we just had uh, before Christmas, where we don't want to be on the water. Now, I'd say 99% of the time, we don't even really notice it. It's it's actually that little gentle booming is is fabulous. It's actually the absence of the motion that we notice more when we leave the house. Hmm. Right. And and so okay. so there are certainly you want to be comfortable. Certain when we look looked at doing a sandy so one. heavy you're in like a mini earthquake a gentle earthquake yeah um, we have a hanging candelabra in our living room and we gauge the temperature of the wind by how far this thing is displacing back and forth through our living room um, and, <laughs> and at what point do you decide that's a warning sign we're getting out yeah well we we've only really lived we've been there six years now we've only really lived through two storms where the only thing keeping us in the house was the fear of leaving it because you know, being out on the dock might have been more dangerous than yeah, staying in. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. um, but 
you know, the pilings are strong and we've got chains and more recently we've added ropes which make a big difference because when we were only chained, when the wind or the tide pulls you away from the dock, you, it's like driving down a logging road. It's just oh. like, mm, 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 you're just banging. <laughs> now we are just kind of gently, it's like a roller coaster ride. Well, people, yeah. ask us, people ask us a question about uh, the storms and you feel safe and of course we feel absolutely safe, but we jokingly say, well, when the big one comes and it will come, you know, we'll be fine. We'll probably be in Chilliwack, but we'll be fine. We'll have a new address. <laughs> <laughs> because we're floating and we're su it's such a stable uh, flotation device that you have under you that you know, that's really not an issue. You're not going to sink a, a floating home so like us. So those are two big, two big issues. But coming back what to else? your original question, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the beauty of it is that you are, you are really living at one with nature in a different sense from maybe living in a cabin or a cottage. But, you know, the elements are, are part of your day-to-day -day living the wind, the rain, the snow, as you say, and the sunshine and, mm -hmm. and the wildlife. I mean, we are the surrounded. The sea critters must be amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Like just the other day, I was watching a river otter jump over the logs along the shore. And this morning, there was a family of geese with their seven or eight goslings, which are now the big sort of fluffy, gray, yeah. gangly teenagers. Almost ready to fly. Almost yeah. ready to, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, we have um, seals that swim down the river and visit the fishermen at the fish plant down the way for scratch. And, um, you know, if you're a photographer or if you're interested in nature, you know, it's a fantastic opportunity. The sunsets that we view down the Fraser with the sun dipping back behind Texada Island, it doesn't get any better than that. It's absolutely wow. exquisite. And in the morning when we wake up, we hear nothing. Like when we first moved there, I thought my eardrums stopped working. <laughs> it's so peaceful. It's really pristine. It's really beautiful. And the, and the type of people, interestingly, and we only learned this, that tend to go in there, as Sandy likes to describe them, they can kind of be a little bit off the grid desirables. A the, little rough around the edges. A little rough around the yeah. edges, a little more into nature for sure. But for the most part, a, a lot of, of retired single woman in their 60s or 70s or 80s who's who maybe came in with their husband and now they've the husband's passed away but we're always surprised that and the, and the realtors tell us this this is this is these this is a big component of of the folks that live in our community it's it's not a retirement community by any means okay so you use the word community is it really a community? Like, are people looking out for one another? Oh, it's get along with one another? So you actually know your neighbors. You know, we lived on a street in Ladner before we bought our floating home for four years, and I knew one neighbor. When we moved into the floating home, before we'd even moved our furniture in, I knew ten neighbors. And imagine you're along a strip of dock where you all have to travel that same strip to get up to the parking lot to your car. So, and it's not very wide, it's maybe six feet wide. So you have no choice but to, to meet and befriend your neighbors. And you do befriend them and you really do have to work together as a unit or an entity because sometimes it requires that teamwork um, you know, to get through the day, like s shoveling snow in the winter, um, a perfect example is the other day we had to pull our kayak off the dock and jump in the water and rescue our neighbor's cat from an engagement with an unfriendly raccoon. She ah. was at work, we weren't. Yep. So, uh, yeah, definitely Okay, so you made it all seem so, so attractive. You know, we <laughs> talked about the fact that you got to carry everything in and out, up and down the dock, like you're boating. Yeah. Are there any other sort of drawbacks or considerations that somebody has to have in mind that you, that you got to give long, hard thought to uh, about moving into a, a floating home as a housing option. <sighs> Stop. No, no, yeah. there's two answers. There's, there's the, the answer, we asked that question when we came in because we kept thinking this is... We actually is, this, asked our marina owner, like, this is why too, this looks we want to live here? Exactly. Yeah. It looks too good to be true. And, and his answer did not discourage us in the slightest. Having said that, there are lots of regulatory challenges. They're different than the ones on land, but because we're so there's so few of us, mm -hmm. uh, it's really important when the government makes policies related to not allowing new developments because if there's no places for for expansion, then your choices are limited and, and that can create unhealthy uh, relationships between renters and owners and all those kind of things. So, so we are, that's why one of the biggest objectives of the association is to try to encourage more of these developments to provide more supply. We know the demands there. We see it all the time. How many, how many emails do we get a week uh, say, asking us, do we know of any places where we can put our floating home because somebody is what needs to move or they're building one or, or whatever. 
but so there are certainly some challenges on the regulatory side. I mean, we don't envision any um, any major uh, negative movement by government and in, in having fewer of them. But but I think without kind of uh, embracing them and expanding them, I, I think it it will kind of wither uh, away a little bit and, and never reach its full potential. So so I guess if you're going in. You know, and I think this is a reality today. You, you might be wondering, well, uh, am I going to be able to sell? And is my right. is my home going to appreciate? And those kinds of, they are appreciating right now because there's 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 a limited supply, limited exactly. supply, a lot of demand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know those kind of things. But those are the same issues you face when when you're buying a property on land for the most part. Very interesting lifestyle choice and one that has benefits and, of course, things to consider if it's, it's one that uh, somebody might be thinking about. Yeah. Thanks for coming in and sharing this. Thank <laughs> You're you. You're welcome. Now, don't go away because joining me now is Barb Nelson, who hosted BC's first ever Tiny Home Expo just last weekend. Barb, welcome. Thank you. Tiny Homes. Tiny homes. They really apparently are quite the rage, aren't they? They are. They are. We uh, just finished a show called the West Coast Small Home Expo, which focuses on tiny homes, but not just tiny homes. We are also uh, trying to expand into small space living. So everybody who is living in smaller um, smaller condos, laneway homes, basement suites, even your townhomes and that nowadays. I live in Langley and a lot of the uh, townhouses even that are going in now are three-story but you're looking at a thousand square feet over that three stories mm -hmm. and so everybody is living in smaller spaces. So you had quite the turnout, like more than you even anticipated. What do you think that that says about the level of interest for this small space living configuration? I think it's here to stay. I think we got the 4,000, we had 4,000 people through over the two days. And for a first time show, I feel that was really good. And yeah, like about four times what you were expecting. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't sure what to expect, really, we weren't. And so, yeah, I think there are so many people, well, in Vancouver, I'm sure a lot of the condos and that now are not huge spaces in that for people to be living in. So everybody struggles with the same sort of things. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, how do you store things in these small spaces? So you have to have things that help you to organize the things that you definitely want to keep. Well, I went out there and I've, you know, there were lineups of people trying to go through these different display homes that yes. were there. And I have to admit, some of the solutions around how do you take what appears to be a desk and, you know, seating area and all of a sudden turn it into a bed. It's like really innovative thinking. And, yeah. And, and this is where we're at uh, as a reflection of how much it costs to live in those or those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, the cost of living here has become so high. I can understand the attraction. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very cool to go through the different homes and see what um, different things in that the different builders have come up with. Like, uh, there was one home that had um, storage underneath the stairs. So yeah. you pull them out, you can put whatever in there. Everywhere that they could think of, there were options in that for storage. Well, in one, there was storage between the wheel, the wheels and yeah. under the, the main floor. And then on the other side of the wheels, there was another uh, large drawer that sort of came out from the outside of the building. Yes. And in, like, every bit of space was being utilized in a pretty thoughtful and innovative way. Yeah. Uh, you know, aside from the storage, too, I think one of the things that amazed me, because people think of tiny homes and think of, oh, everything's going to be so much smaller. But I think some of it was the sizes of the kitchens. They There were a few there that had full-size refrigerators. They had a dishwasher built in. They had... Um, all kinds of different things that were regular size appliances. And I had always thought that when you were building a tiny home, it would be much more compact things. But anyway, I was pleasantly amazed at what people come up with and ways to fit it in. Well, one of the things I think that would hold me back, and I was, uh, to use your expression, <laughs> pleasantly surprised, is there were a couple in there that were showers that I go, 
yeah, this is like a got a good bit of space in here. Because yes. usually you think, okay, well, I'm going to have to be cramped in with a little, you know. But no, it, uh, they really engineered this quite well. Yeah, they did. And there was one with a bathtub that was actually a decent-sized bathtub. Yeah. Hard to uh, believe. Yeah. <laughs> but there it was. I think the more interesting, th well, no, it's not the more interesting. One of the other interesting things is the cost of entry. Anywhere from about 60-some-odd thousand dollars up to about $120,000, depending on how complex you want to yeah. get. So to have what amounts to a tiny condo on wheels uh, for that price pretty affordable and so that that gives people entry into home ownership it does it does because it's so hard nowadays entry level into your regular condo and that i'm not even sure anymore what prices are like here in vancouver but like out in langley you're looking at probably three hundred thousand for a very very small condo um i would say that most are are more than that mm -hmm. and as a first time and you need 10 percent down that's a lot of money you have to save or have somebody invest with you to be able to get into the housing market. Well, so that leaves me wondering, if I go to buy a tiny home, mm -hmm. um, and it, let's say it's $100,000, I guess I can get a loan rather than a mortgage, and then therefore I wouldn't have to qualify for the B20 stress test. Yes. So huh. there are, um, we had one mortgage broker at the show and that who, uh, she's also a builder. And so she specializes in helping people get into these different homes and such. Um, some of them are qualifying as RVs. So it would be the same sort of uh, financing structures and that is buying an RV. Mm-hmm. So that brings up where can you live in a tiny home? Well, because every yeah. every municipality has different rules uh, with regards to this kind of living. Yes, exactly. So what are some of the things that someone has to take into consideration if, if you say, yeah, that looks really reasonable to me, and wow, what a price. Okay, I can see myself doing that. But what are some of the other things that I ha need to make sure that I've checked off if I want to move into that kind of living arrangement. Okay, well, first of all, Victoria is now legalizing um, the tiny homes. Meaning that you can come in, set up, and stay there. You would have to go through and make sure that you're meeting whatever their criteria is, but the Sunshine Coast also accepts them. Uh, there's a new development going up into Sunshine Valley, and there are other municipalities around the Lower Mainland that are looking at it. So I'm, I'm hoping that it will get easier and easier to do that. Um, you know, out in the valley where there is acreage and such and wouldn't it be nice if like in my case my dad is uh, still alive but I would love to be able to have somewhere and that that he could be close by us same thing with our kids and such if you've got a piece of property why not be able to use it with something and that that you can have them actually living you know on close proximity and them being able to afford it right so one of the things that i thought about when i was looking at this okay there's a, been a considerable amount of discussion around laneway homes as a way of yes. being able to expand the amount of available housing in the city let's say like vancouver yes the problem and i thought well wouldn't a tiny house be a nice alternative to building a laneway home laneway home costs more money it's harder to put in there's all that approval process and so i looked into it but apparently the the bylaws wouldn't allow you to do that and uh, for any more than about six months out of the year yeah um, and and so what do you do around that how do you how do you get around that well <laughs> that's that's a good question and that there are different groups out there uh, tiny Tiny House Alliance Canada, I believe, is one of them. Look for the different groups in that that are out there that are trying to do things um, and that to get it so that tiny homes are legal around. Um, I know part of the problem is the fact that they are, quote, on wheels. Mm hmm and so it's a whole different set of rules and standards um, based on that. So I would say go in and ask your city, municipality, and such what you would have to do to be able to do this. And I think there's going to be a lot of groups and a lot of people in that lobbying for some of this to change um, as we go forward. So what are a couple of the other 
considerations around being able to set up because you need to have water uh, and yeah. and access to sewage. Yes. Electricity. Yes. Um, and some some form of communication. But beyond that, you're pretty self-sufficient, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, you are. I mean, as far as electricity goes, you can also look at solar panels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, such, I know. I saw which, some pretty innovative solar panels oh, off yeah. off the sides of some of those those homes that were on display. Yeah. So I think also what's happening with a lot of uh, the different homes and that too is that they end up up um, up country over on the island and such being used as vacation property or people living in sort of out of the way places and that where they may be off grid and uh, mm -hmm. yeah so. Yeah, but I can see that there would be an interest uh, among some people saying, no, 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 I want to bring that kind of style living into an urban setting. Yeah. So there's going to have to be talk between the tiny house community and the different cities and municipalities to see what common ground that they can find for moving forward. So are tiny homes being manufactured here in British Columbia? Oh, absolutely. All of the homes that we had, so we have mint tiny homes there, we had coast coast tiny homes, uh, there was hewing house, uh, freestyle spaces, there was tiny healthy homes, just, you know, to name a few. To name a few, so there are quite a few. Absolutely. Wheelhouse, uh, there was Sunshine Coast, I think they're just Sunshine tiny homes, but from the Sunshine Coast. So, so there, there is people. an industry, okay, and and growing interest. And growing. So what would be your checklist of the first four or five things that somebody should tick off if they're looking at moving into this tiny home space? You have to like to live in a small space. Yes. At, absolutely, because it is a whole different lifestyle. You have to be willing to downsize because you cannot take a lot of your belongings and possessions with you, you have to decide what exactly is the most important to you. And if you can't get past that, mm. then it's a little bit difficult. I think one of the things too about living in a tiny house is the freedom in that because you are not tied to a mortgage. You have the ability to travel, you have the ability to do all kinds of different things that you're not spending your weekly or bi-weekly paycheck on. Wow. So it's it's a whole lifestyle. And it looks like it's a good one. Yeah. Uh, for, th for those who like it, I, I notice that there's definitely an indoor-outdoor sort of component. All yes. these places where it was sort of like, yeah, here's your indoor space, but here's how you kind of like make the, the, the extra square 10, 20, 30 feet outside the, the door uh, an extension of your place. And yeah. so, you, you know, you're going to ha want to have that indoor-outdoor living. Absolutely. Um, I think it was freestyle spaces that had the tiny home with the spiral staircase yeah. that went up and they had a gorgeous living space up top. Yeah, and, huge uh, deck up there. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So if that's what you're looking for, I mean, there's there definitely is the roof to look at. Um, you can build decks, you can do all kinds of different things in that to increase your outdoor living space. But yes, here you also have to... I guess be prepared if you are going to live in a tiny home year-round, be prepared for the fact that during the winter months, we don't necessarily get a lot of outdoor time, uh, <laughs> depending on what the weather does. <laughs> Very nicely put. <laughs> the wet coast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that is one of the considerations. But it is an alternative to living, especially when we take a look at the high cost of housing here oh, in absolutely. the south, southwest of British Columbia. So it is an alternative that people can consider. Yes, yes, it definitely is. Okay, great. Well, thank you for coming in and sharing this with us. And I'm sure the uh, Tiny Home Expo will be back next year. It will be back again June 6th and 7th at Tradex 2020. Fabulous. Okay. Best of luck with that. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in on Apple Podcasts, thevancouversun.com, and theprovince.com, as well as the Vancouver Sun's YouTube channel, which I ask you to subscribe to because you won't want to miss an episode. As well, I want to thank and acknowledge Arnold Chang, Greta Gibson, and Derek Hader, without whom this show would not be possible. What a great team I get to work with. I'm Stuart McNish. Thanks for joining us on Housing Matters, the Vancouver Real Estate Show. See you next time. Mm -hmm.